have, but we're glad that you're with us this morning. So we're going to dive right in because we've got a, a, there's a lot to be said in one short verse in Exodus chapter 20. So I'm going to read the scripture as we begin this morning uh, and follow on the screen. Don't try to follow in your Bible this morning, which is something I rarely say. I always encourage folks, bring your Bibles, study your own Bible, even if it's on your phone or on your, on your iPad. But we're going to be in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Proverbs and John. And that's just to start with this morning. So it'll be easier to follow along on the screen than it will be to try and flip through the pages of Scripture. So here, the Word of God, Exodus chapter 20, God's, the, uh, the uh, leader Moses writes the following, and God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Deuteronomy chapter 19, the judge shall inquire diligently And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And then in Proverbs chapter 6, this is a relatively famous passage. Perhaps you've heard this before. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And then in John's gospel in the New Testament, Jesus is speaking to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. And Jesus said to him, he's speaking to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together for a moment. Father, we come to you this morning in need of your word, in need of your truth to penetrate our hearts and our minds. We have had uh, busy weeks. We have had weeks that have been filled with uh, distractions, uh, responsibilities. Some of us have had weeks of joy. Others have had weeks of incredible pain. And perhaps most of us have had some of each of those things. Father, I thought as I I sang it as well with my soul, I I actually thought I need to make that a prayer uh, because there are moments where I I want that to be true, but I don't always trust in you as I should. Circumstances sometimes get the better of me. Sometimes the, the challenges of this world make it so that my soul is anything but settled. And so, Father, it's good for us, it's right for us, it's life giving for us to come back to your word this morning and to allow it to sink deeply into our lives. Father, what I have to say is of no consequence. It is only your word that will last into eternity, and so we pray that you would speak to us this morning through it, that you would show us your glory, that you would show us your character, and you would show us the the hope and the life that come through these words in Scripture. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of your teaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a, a habit in my sermons to come up with what I call a sermon in a sentence. And I, and I do that at the beginning of pretty much every sermon I preach because it helps me be disciplined and trying to stay on task. You may have noticed if you've been here a while, I kind of like to blab and ramble and wander down different pathways. And I'm more than happy to stand up here and talk for 45 minutes. And y'all are polite enough that you would actually sit there and pretend to listen. However, the sermon in a sentence helps me get right to it. This morning... 
I have the longest sermon in a sentence in the history of the world. It's going to take three screens to see this sermon in a sentence. And what this is, is from the Westminster Confession of Faith Catechism. So I'm going back into my Presbyterian roots and heritage, and I'm pulling out something that is, has been around since the 1600s. And if you want to do a great Bible study, I think you're going to see when I read this sermon in a sentence in a minute, I think you're going to see the, the richness and the fullness and the depth of the confession of faith and the catechism. And I would encourage you, if you've never studied the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechism, I encourage you to do so. You can do it as an individual study. Uh, you could do it in a small group Bible study, but there's a lot of wonderful things here. But the sermon in a sentence is the answer to question number 144 in the catechism, which asks the question, what does the ninth commandment require? And here's the answer. And I'm actually not going to try to read it on the screen. I'm actually going to get these notes because they're bigger font. What does the ninth commandment require? The ninth commandment requires that we maintain and promote truthfulness in our dealings with each other and the good reputation of others as well as ourselves. We must come forward and stand up for the truth, speaking the truth and nothing but the truth from our hearts, sincerely, freely, clearly, and without equivocation, not only in all matters relating to the law and justice, but in any and every circumstance whatsoever. We must have a charitable regard for others, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good reputation, as well as regretting and putting the best light on their failings. We must freely acknowledge their talents and gifts, defending their innocence, readily receiving a good report about them, and reluctantly admitting a bad one. We should discourage gossips, flatterers, and slanders. We should love and protect our own good reputation and defend it when necessary. We should keep every lawful promise we make no matter what. And finally, we should do the best we can to focus our lives and thoughts on things that are true, noble, lovely, and admirable. If I didn't like to kind of ramble and talk, I'd just stop right there. Because I don't think I can say it any better than that. But what the ninth commandment is doing is exposing our need for honesty. It's showing how vitally important it is that truthfulness abound in the lives of the people of God. Why is the ninth commandment so important? Why is it that if you have ever testified in a courtroom, I don't know if you've ever testified in a courtroom or not, but you, you raise your right hand and will you, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. A lot of places you put your hand on a Bible and you make that promise. Why is it that, that truthfulness is so vitally important. Well, I think there are two reasons for that, and I think both are found in Scripture. In God's seeking to care for his people as he established the nation of Israel, he wanted to make sure that there would be a way to maintain good order and honesty. He wanted to make sure that, that when it came to solving problems within the larger community of the nation of Israel, that there would be a clear pathway to that, and the same holds true today. In the United States of America, we say we're a nation that's not governed by people, but a nation that's governed by law, right? And so the commentator Stewart writes this about, about this need. He says, because crimes and disputes do occur, it must be the case that they are adjudicated and the criminal behavior of unfaithfulness, excuse me, unfairness, thereby stopped. If 
witnesses in a trial, whether civil or criminal, do not tell the truth, it is extremely difficult for judges to render proper decisions. In other words, the court system of a nation depends what? Depends on the honesty of its people. And I believe that God understood that. And so he made the ninth commandment a part of, our, uh, of the focus of some of the most important things he shared with the people of Israel. But there's also one other reason. And it's because we're prone to look out for ourselves first and others a distant second, which means we don't mind sometimes shading the truth. We, we don't mind maybe not getting it quite right. I've had a couple of, of little bit less serious illustrations. I don't know if you can see the, the writing there, but uh, the, the witness is saying, through no fault of my own, I have a tendency to shade the truth, right? So we, we have a tendency, even when we're under pressure to tell the truth, sometimes we're like, eh, it might not be convenient for us. And then going off of a, of a, of a children's fairy tale, there's a gentleman with a very long nose, and we kind of all know what that means metaphorically. And the lawyer is saying, perhaps you'd like to reconsider that last answer. Right? So yes, in, in, in a court of law, uh, we certainly uh, need that. But in all of society, we need truth telling. Uh, and I think we could acknowledge that there are times when there are pure motives to not tell the truth. You can think back in, in history. You think about uh, people in our own nation who were part of the Underground Railroad, who, who hid slaves and helped them get from uh, a place of being oppressed and being uh, enslaved to being free. And at times they lied about that. They didn't tell the truth about that because there was a, a higher good to which they were after. You can think of in Europe in the 1930s through the mid-1940s as people uh, actively and intentionally and, and, and in many ways successfully uh, hid the Jews from their Nazi persecutors. But I dare say that that isn't the issue that I struggle with every day when it comes to telling the truth. It, I, I don't even know that there's one time in my life where I thought the lie would save this person's life and it's the better thing and so that's what I'm going to do. More often, when I shade the truth or when I flat out just don't tell the truth, it's to cover my own sin. Uh, it's perhaps to hurt someone else or to get even with another. Or if I'm really honest, it's, there are times when I use my shading of the truth to deflect my own responsibility uh, to the situation which I have created. So if that's the, the motive, if the motive is, you know, my heart isn't always the best, how does God react? react, excuse me, to deliberate dishonesty. Because you're bearing false witness, you're thinking about it, right? Even if you're thinking about it for, for four or five seconds, you're deciding to go this way instead of that way. What's God's reaction to my lack of truth-telling? Well, if you go through the Old Testament, and, and I just did a real cursory run through it, you see the word witness described, a false witness described in a lot of different ways. Here's some of the words that God uses. A false witness, we've already mentioned, a lying witness, a witness without a good cause, so someone who is, who is trivial, who's doing something that it's really kind of a waste of everybody's time, but they're, they're doing something out of, out of pettiness, right? Uh, they're a worthless witness. They're a crooked witness. There are people who are called malicious witnesses. And I don't know about you, uh, but if somebody said to me, Tom, you are a crooked, malicious witness, I would not take that as a compliment. I would understand that they were saying something critical about me. The language that God uses to describe this deliberate dishonesty is not flattering. Beyond that, one of the passages that we read in Deuteronomy 19 says this, when the judge is diligently inquiring, and if the witness is false, the witness is accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. Why? So you shall purge this evil from your midst. 
God feels so strongly about this. He says, if Tom was going to lie to hurt his brother, and that's discovered, then whatever Tom was trying to do to his brother, that's what should be done to him. God's very serious about this deliberate dishonesty. Leviticus 19 verses 11 and 12 actually expand this notion, not just to a court case, but to kind of life in general among the people of God. You shall not steal, right? That's dishonest. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. God is saying there that all dishonesty in any way, shape, or form is evil. And then we come to the passage we read in Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And then look down there at verse 19. A false witness who breathes out lies, the one who sows discord among his brothers. Solomon goes on to say in Proverbs chapter 6 that this dishonesty won't go unpunished. A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who breathes out lies will perish. Now, you might be saying, Tom, I know people that lie all the time and they get away with it. They've actually become very good at it and nobody seems to hold them to account. In Revelation 21, we read perhaps the most disturbing verse of all that we're going to consider this morning. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of, that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There is a reckoning. You don't just have to stand before your friends and neighbors. You, you don't just have to stand before a court and account for what you've done or what you haven't done. You have to stand before the Lord God Almighty, and He will judge all sin that is not confessed. If we do not turn to Him for forgiveness in this life, we will be accountable in the next. And so don't for one minute think that God is turning a blind eye and, and looking at someone even with some envy in your heart saying, you know, boy, they get away with everything. I wish I had that kind of luck. Trust me, brothers and sisters, you don't want to be standing in those shoes. God takes our deliberate dishonesty very, very seriously. Jesus had to go to the cross to pay for the sin in my life that is deliberate dishonesty. It's not going to be shirked off. It's not going to be forgotten. So while we may make light of it, while we may brush it off, God does not. Well, why is this honest character so vital in all things? What Daryl asked the question last week, I thought really well when he was talking about the Eighth Commandment. What's really behind it? What's kind of the broader picture? Uh, not just don't steal, but what is, what's really the commandment after? And that's the question that I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at. What's the bigger picture of the Ninth Commandment? And I have five observations about this. Don't panic. We'll get through uh, in time. Uh, but I think these are, are, are maybe going to expand our, our vision of this just a bit. The first is this. I, I think what, one of the things the ninth commandment is after is helping us manifest God's love to everyone equally at all times. If you notice, if you've been following along this summer, or if you've just read the Ten Commandments or studied it at a different time in your life, you'll notice that this is the first time in the Ten Commandments where the word neighbor is used. And it's going to be used four times. It's going to be used three more times. And you'll hear more about that next Sunday when we get to the Tenth Commandment. But in, in, in this Ninth Commandment, this word neighbor is brought up. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, now, I don't very often talk about the, you know, now this is what it means in the original language because a lot of times it's one for one and it doesn't really need explaining, but here it needs a bit of explanation. This word in the ancient Hebrew did not mean my next door neighbor. 
It didn't mean the folks of my block. It didn't mean the people that live in the greater Kirkwood, Glendale, De Pere area. It, it didn't mean people that live in the St. Louis region. This word means anyone with whom you happen to come into contact. Now, I want you to remember that word happen, and in just a minute, we're going we're to come to that uh, in a story that Jesus tells. But the notion here of neighbor is in the broadest terms possible. Anyone with whom I may come into contact, not a person living close to me, not somebody that I like versus someone I don't like. Not someone who I have a long history with versus someone that I just met 10 minutes ago. Anyone with whom I may come into contact is my neighbor. And Jesus picks up on this. If you read Luke 10 and you read Jesus' story about being neighborly, he refers back to this notion. So this guy comes to him, he's kind of cocky, he's kind of puffed up, and he says, hey, Jesus, what do, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he's feeling pretty good about himself. And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It's like, I've already, I've already done all that. And he's thinking to himself, I, I'm not sure I like this answer. So he wants to make sure he justifies himself. So he says, Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. And he says, there was a guy who was a businessman, and he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's kind of a day's walk. And as he's walking in a desolated area, he gets mugged. He gets beat up, and he gets left on the street for dead. And then he says, and it just so happens, right there, right, that a priest walked by. And he crossed by, and he walked down the other side of the street and ignored him. And then a Levite, another guy that should have stopped him, did the exact same thing. But then a Samaritan, the natural enemy of the Jew, stopped and he helped him and he bound up his wounds and he took him to the next town, took him into Jericho and he gave the innkeeper enough money to keep him overnight and he gave him more money and he said, you know, use this money to take care of him and anything that else you spend on him, don't worry, I'll come back, when I come back, I'll pay you, just make sure he's okay. And then Jesus looks at this arrogant guy uh, who had been smug a few minutes ago and he says, now which one acted more neighborly? <laughs> the guy had to admit, the one who took care of him. He said, now you go do that. Anyone with whom you may come into contact deserves your living out the love and the mercy and the grace of God in your interaction with them. No matter whether they're someone you didn't know five minutes ago or someone you've lived with all of your life, we are called to manifest God's love. And part of that manifestation is found in honesty. So about, I don't know, maybe 15, 16 years ago, I was playing golf with some friends, and we were playing on a golf course where some absolute knucklehead built a parking lot right next to the fairway on the first hole. I don't know who did this, but ultimately in this story, that's the person that's at fault, not me. I want you to remember that. And it was on the left side of the fairway, which is rarely a problem for me because I usually slice it to the right. So I get up on the tee box and I swing and my ball goes straight left and it's in air and it's kind of like, you know, that chariots of fire, dun, dun. you're just waiting what's going to happen. Hopefully I'll hear a golf ball hitting the parking lot and the pavement and nothing else. And I listen and I hear it crash, windshield. Wow, gone it. And you're the preacher. <laughs> and now everybody looks at you. What are you going to do? All right. So I get in my golf cart, I drive up there, I find where the, where the windshield is, is shattered, and I write a note saying, I'm a preacher, and all my friends think I'm writing a note that I'm going to pay for this, but I'm not. I'll never see you again, and I left the note. I know I, I didn't do that. I left the note. I said, here's my name, here's my phone number, and I, and I knew it was gonna, I didn't want to do it. I really didn't, but I did, and I never met that person. Talked to him on the phone one time in my life because he called me, and he was shocked. 
that somebody would leave that note. And I got to say to him, the only reason I left that note is because I'm a Christian. And because my Lord calls me to be honest in all things, because I do not want to pay for your windshield. In fact, I want to tell you, don't park in that parking lot. <laughs> and I want to know the name of the guy who developed that parking lot. All right, I'm going, trying to justify myself. But he deserved God's love through me. That's part of the reason why I believe God says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Secondly, it's because God wants to transform our hearts and our minds. What's the natural condition of your heart and your mind apart from Christ? What's my natural condition? This is where Christianity and, and most of the rest of the world, religions and secular humanity go in very different directions because most people would say we're fundamentally good folks and every once in a while we mess it up. That's not what Jesus says. That's not what scripture says. Scripture says, yes, there's part of the image of God remaining us, but that ultimately we are flawed. And so Jesus is having a conversation with some folks, and they're fussing at him about not washing his hands before he ate dinner. And he says in response to them, it's not what goes into the mouth, but it's what comes out of the mouth, proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles a person. From out of the heart comes what? Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Do we understand this morning that our hearts need to be renewed, that our minds need to be renewed, that that's what naturally comes out of our minds. That's the way we think. That's the way we act. Again, because we want to look out for ourselves first. But God doesn't want to leave us there. And in fact, God promises if we put our faith in him, that he'll move us away from that in a different direction. Two weeks from now, we're going to start an in-depth study that's going to start in August, and it's going to wrap up around Easter time, and we're going to study the book of Ephesians. So if you want to start, get a head start on it, start reading the book of Ephesians in the next couple of weeks. But in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks to God's plan to change your life and to change my life in the way we think and the way we, the way we act. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's theology, right? That, that, that's pure teaching. Here's, here's what God's doing in your life. He's taking away the old and he's putting in the new and you need to, you need to cooperate with that. You, you, need to, you need to revel in that. You need to allow that to happen. And now he gets down to the first point of application. And what's the first thing he says for practical application? Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He could have said anything there. He could have talked about sexual purity. He, he could have talked about, about honest business dealings. He could, have, he could have talked about, you know, being, being faithful to, to share the gospel with other people. But he talks about being truthful. He talks about being honest. That's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants us to lead authentic lives that are a witness for the saving and redemptive work in Jesus Christ and lead to the harmony of the church. Thirdly, God also wants us to be able to live free from fear. When you think about not telling the truth, when you, when you think about shading the truth, and you think about how you got to then tell the next dishonesty to make sure you've covered up for that one, and, and then how you got to make sure, well, that person didn't hear it, so I got to make sure I tell the story there. And all of a sudden, you start to get in a bit of a panic because the dominoes kind of fall down and it all can eventually become a mess. You know, you got to keep track of your lives. You end up living in fear. You end up living in fear because dishonesty breeds ill will. 
Dishonesty breeds a desire for retribution. Dishonesty leads to broken relationships. If you don't believe that that's true and you're married, I would challenge you to spend the next week doing nothing but lying to your spouse. Try that on and see if your marriage isn't ready for divorce by next Sunday. There's nothing that is more destructive. Hear me, brothers and sisters. There's nothing that is more destructive to a marriage and to a family than dishonesty, not being trustworthy. And so we need to understand that when we, when we live that way, we can break relationships. And then you live in fear of discovery. Anybody know who that guy is on the screen? This is going back a ways. He's very famous, but I wouldn't expect you to, to know what he looks like. He, uh, he wrote about a little detective character named Sherlock Holmes. That's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And I'm going to read for you an excerpt from the Washington Post, June 16, 1901. I heard Dr. Conan Doyle, he was a doctor before he became an author. I heard Dr. Conan Doyle tell a good story during a trip I made to London last winter, said George D. Aldrich at the Arlington last night. He said that at a dinner party he had attended, the guests began discussing the daily discoveries made to the detriment of people occupying high stations in life and enjoying the confidence of the business world. Dr. Doyle said that it had always been his opinion that there was a skeleton in the closet of every man who had reached the age of 40. How many, how many folks in here are younger than 40? Got a few? Okay, you guys are still okay so far, all right? This led a lot of discussion, to a lot of discussion, some guests resenting the idea that there was no one who could not in his past uh, have something that were better concealed, better covered up, better not being honest about as a result of the controversy, Dr. Doyle said it was suggested that his views as to the family skeletons be put to the test. It kind of sounds like a Sherlock Holmes story already. The dinners, the diners, excuse me, selected a man of their acquaintance whom all knew as, only as an upright Christian gentleman whose word was accepted as quickly as his bond and who stood with the highest in every respect. We wrote a telegram saying, all is discovered, flee at once. To this pillar of society, said Dr. Doyle, and we sent it. The man disappeared the next day and has never been heard from since. Maybe that's urban legend, who knows? But it was in the Washington Post. I mean, you can't trust the Washington Post. Who can you trust? Don't snicker at that. Come on, guys. I'm not getting political here this morning. Living in fear, dishonesty breeds fear. And God wants us to be free from that. Look at what God says about our trust in him and where that leads. You, God, the Lord, will keep the, this person in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusted in you. God wants you to have a life that is filled with his peace, not without challenges, not without trouble, but a life that is centered upon the peace that he gives. And part of that is learning to live with the glory that is the ninth commandment. Fourthly, the ninth commandment protects us from self-obsession. Now, we've already touched on this a little bit, but we tend to be me first kind of folks. We actually start this at an, at an early age. You know, when you guys, uh, if you decide and the Lord blesses you with a second child, you're going to get to see that interaction between siblings. What's one of the first words that every human being says? 
mine, right? That's, that's kind of, we come out that way and we kind of continue that way. We, we're really wrapped up in ourselves. Uh, we just got a video, uh, speaking of, of, uh, of young ones, we just got a video of our daughter Katie of their little boy Landon. And Landon was born in December, so he's, I guess, almost, he'll be eight months old at the end of August. And he's sitting in his high chair and you, could, you can't see Katie feeding him, but you can see the hand and the spoon come in. And every time the hand and the spoon that has some kind of mush that looks really bad. But every time that gets closer to his face, his eyes light up and his mouth opens and he gets it in his mouth and he chews it with a grin and he swallows it with a grin. And then the spoon comes again and he's so happy. And I guess this was some kind of social experiment because the third time the spoon stopped and there was a pause and you could see the look in his eye. And he was like, where is it? Right. And it started out questioning. And then it was like, where is it? And then he was like, starting to shake, and then he literally slammed his hand on the, the high chair and started screaming, ah, and if he could speak, he would say, woman, give me my food, right? Because it's about me. The ninth commandment wants to help us understand that's how we view the world. We don't mind a little dishonesty if it serves my purposes. You know, we, we come out thinking, you know, me, mine, me first, and what's that led us to? It's led us to the need for the Me Too movement, right? Because people are so self-obsessed, they don't mind hurting other people. And certainly we don't mind being dishonest from time to time, even if it hurts you, if it helps me. The ninth commandment protects us from self-obsession. And then lastly, the ninth commandment ultimately lays the groundwork for salvation. As I said before the baptism, one of the biggest questions that we need to answer individually in our journey of faith is, can God be trusted? Does God keep his word? Because there are a lot of words in this Bible. Are they true? They claim to be from God. Whether you believe the Bible or, or, or you don't believe the Bible this morning, the claim that this book makes is that this is God's word and that it is trustworthy and that it is true. And, and that's the biggest question in our lives because of verses like this. And we've read this already. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If that's true, if, if, if God is obeying the ninth commandment himself, when Jesus speaks that, that's a profound statement. It means that he alone is Savior. But you may look at that and go, well, I don't think Jesus would want me. I, I, you know, I haven't been an honest person. I've, I, I've been a dishonest person in my life. I'm not sure that, that he would, would receive me even if I came to him and said, I, I need forgiveness. Or maybe I, I have done that, but boy, I, I can't quite get out of the sin pattern in my life. And I'm pretty sure that, that, you know, he'll toss me aside once he sees the real me. Well, that's why scripture has to be completely true from beginning to end with no exceptions, because Jesus also said this in John chapter six, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. He's talking about people. He's talking about your soul and my soul and salvation, but raise it up on that last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. So if Jesus is true about the statement of being the Savior, he's also true in the fact that he will forgive and love and hold on to you for all of eternity, and therefore your salvation is secure. That's why the ninth commandment is absolutely fundamental to your salvation and my salvation. God isn't saying don't be dishonest with one another, but it doesn't matter what I do. 
God is saying, be like your heavenly father who only tells you the truth. So this morning, when you think about application, are we willing to acknowledge the dishonesty and the selfishness that can exist and live within us? Are we willing to confess this to God? Are we willing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for, for our own personal salvation? I, I think probably a lot of people in this room have put their faith in Christ. Maybe this morning it is a time for you just to kind of renew that in your heart and ask God to be at work in your life in this area of honesty and telling the truth. But if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, it's as simple as saying, Jesus, please be my Savior. I put my trust in you, asking for forgiveness of dishonest thoughts and words and deeds. And then in a very practical way, friends, I would strongly, strongly urge you to share the challenges of, of faithful honesty in your life with other disciples. <clears throat> you should have someone in your life. I should have someone in my life to whom I can speak and say, you know, here's my struggle in this area. And know that they're not going to judge me. They're not going to, you know, use their Bible as a baseball bat and beat me over the head with it. But they're going to pray with me. They're going to challenge me. They're not going to say, oh, that's great. Don't worry about it. They're going to they're love me well. But you have to have somebody in your life. So you can say, here's my struggle. And you're a brother in Christ, you're a sister in Christ. And, and notice there that I, we want to say be specific. Not I struggle with honesty, but let me tell you something. I, when I get kind of in a disagree with my wife, I, I, I don't like telling her the truth. And sometimes I don't because I, it makes me look bad. That's a specific confession of a specific sin. Be specific. But have someone in your life. If you don't have somebody in your life, talk to me afterwards. We'll, we'll set up uh, some friendships and some potential relationships for you to be able to have those kind of folks in your life that you can ask. <clears throat> prayer and care. And then lastly, let me encourage us as a congregation to live transparently, no matter what. Live honestly, even in moments where I have to say, mm, that one's on me. I was wrong. I didn't do it right. I fell short. I purposely didn't do what I, what I should have done. I didn't love you well in that situation. I actually was kind of mean-spirited towards you. Whatever the case may be, live transparently so the world can see that we really do believe that the Lord Jesus Christ can forgive us when we fail to live out the ninth commandment. When we live transparently, we allow God's love for us to flow in us and then through us to our neighbor. That's why it's so absolutely vital that we understand the truth behind this word. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that your word is true that your word is whole and complete. It has nothing lacking. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth, <clears throat> that we are broken, that we are in need of a Savior. But Father, you also love us from an eternal perspective that the Lord Jesus would come and would give himself for us. So Father, I pray for each one of us that struggle at times with honesty, that struggle with, with wanting to shade the truth a little bit, Lord, we may not find ourselves perjuring ourselves in a court of law, but we may find ourselves saying things that aren't accurate to look better or to deflect responsibility or to gossip about someone else and try to make ourselves look better by saying untruths about them. So, Father, convict us where we need to be convicted. But also, Father, reassure us that your grace is for us, that it is sure and is certain. And if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and also to transform us and renew our hearts and minds that we would be more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.